I still need the intro. Thank you. <laughs> we should never do ASMR. This is creepy. <laughs> That's not a nice sound. I'm sorry. I will stop. <laughs> Hello, strangers, and welcome to Stargazers a discussion on identity and representation in Stargate. You are listening to Episode 3, Good Alien, Bad Alien, where we talk about Season 1, Episode 3 of Stargate SG-1, The Enemy Within. Hiya, Editing Punk here. Chiming in with not a haven't you people ever heard of, but two bits of information relevant for this week's show. First off, trigger warnings. We are going to compare some scenes to the way society and laws handle abortions and thus mention them a few times. Also, there will be mentioning of rape. On a less serious note, my voice will be weirdly deep this episode because I had a really exhausting week followed by a long night out right before recording this episode and Lils will sound a bit raspier than they usually would. They didn't go out and party, but they are medically inconvenienced. I'd say the combination of that might be a reason for the episode being chaotic as well, but in all honesty, I guess that's not really that different from the other episodes, so enjoy. Do you remember what happened? Because I sure don't. <laughs> we should really start considering watching the episodes and then just record right after that. But then I can't systematize my notes and I really like organizing stuff. <laughs> okay, um... I wrote down a summary of the episode and I'm going to give us and the listeners a quick summary. That actually has a good point because at the end of this, of checking my notes, I could not remember anymore whether Kowalski died or not. So that might be an important point to be aware of. <sighs> okay, so the episode starts with Kowalski and O'Neill arguing over which planet they wish to visit. Uh, when sirens go off, the gate is activated. The Goa'uld are trying to attack, but they can't get through the iris. Kowalski gets a headache. Colonel O'Neill tells him to get checked out. General Hammond talks to Jack in Hammond's office, tells him that Tialk is to be used for scientific research. Jack tells Tialk immediately. Kowalski is getting checked by Dr. Nimziki. Then the doc touches a lump on Kowalski's back. The Goa'uld lava takes control of Kowalski and kills the doctor. Dr. Jackson and Captain Dr. Carter are giving a presentation when Daniel sees Kowalski in the gate room, where he regains control over his body, not remembering anything that happened in the immediate past. Tialk is interrogated by Colonel Kennedy, our obstructive bureaucrat of the episode. Tialk talks about an ancient story he learned and name drops the Tauri, which is what the Goa'uld call the humans. Dr. Warner, a new doctor, continues the medical checkup with Kowalski. An MRI reveals the Gua'uld attached to his spine. The Gua'uld takes over again, attacking the doctor and a few others, and finally taking Carter hostage, who does exactly nothing to avoid this. The team tries catching him without damaging the host. In a lift alone with Carter, Kowalski regains consciousness. Kowalski is restrained again, and we witness a heartfelt conversation between him and O'Neill. The team discusses how to proceed, considering Tiag's information that removing the Goa'uld would likely kill the host. When the decision to operate is made and approved by General Hammond, Tiag further assists by helping the doctors find a suitable anesthetic for the operation. Kowalski insists the general will give the order to kill him should the procedure fail, not wanting to be taken prisoner in his own body or serving as a host for the Goa'uld, but seemingly the operation is completed without any complications. 
Now that he is not needed in the Stargate command center anymore, Tiag is to be shipped to a research lab. But conveniently, Kowalski's goal takes over again and escapes just in time for Tiag to keep him from escaping through the Stargate. In a dramatic one-on-one, -on -one, with the whole team being trapped in the control room, witnessing his bravery and commitment. Kowalski's head is forced into the Stargate as it shuts down, killing him and the Gwa'uld instantly. The episode ends with Tiag finally joining SG-1 and the team sets off to their first mission. What a lovely happy ending for this episode after we had so much trauma porn in the last one. At least if you are somewhat accepting of Kowalski's death, which was upsetting, but in the end it was probably perceived to be the better outcome here. Kowalski dying in the end of this episode displays multiple tropes, um, which is something I would like to talk to you further in. But for now, why don't you tell me about your thoughts? All right. So in the beginning of the episode somewhere, Carter and Jackson are starting to form a bond through the deep connection of nerding. I enjoyed that very much. Um, I have no idea anymore what the conversation was about to be fair um but i like that they are slowly becoming friends through this common interest and work they are talking about the titanium iris keeping the alien force from entering the stargate command center ah yes our sci-fi iron curtain it's supposed to be three microns in front of the gate's event horizon to quote carter do you have any concept of what that size might mean I have an idea of what an event horizon is and how to explain that. I have no idea what the measurements were. Uh, microns, three microns. Um, for a sense of scale, an average human hair has about 40 microns in diameter. Okay, that's nothing. <laughs> that's really nothing. A high-grade cashmere, which is amazing, has maybe 15 microns, so it's way thinner than our hair would be. Is that why it is so soft? Yes. A single atom, though, has about one two thousandth of a micron. So the theory that nothing should be able to reform on our side of the gate is not exactly correct. But at least it won't be any... I don't want to say fleshly matter. That sounds disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds sinful <laughs> it does in a way but it will definitely keep any living thing to pass through bacteria let me google that oh my god that would be so cool because then potentially the stargate could be the beginning of an alien pandemic and i would love that storyline not gonna lie <laughs> okay um so, according to pharmaguideline.com, the smallest known bacteria have a size of approximately 0.3 microns. Does that mean that would work? It would definitely work. Nice. I love finding loopholes. Okay, I think I interrupted you there. Um, go on. Did you? Where were we? Ah, yeah, we were at Carter and Jackson nerding. I enjoyed that tangent very much. So it was worth talking about this because I wasn't sure whether I would even keep in my little commentary on Carter and Jackson's bonding because it was so small. And now I'm like, oh yeah, definitely worth it. Um, 
my next point of note would have been Hammond's and O'Neill's conversation in Hammond's office. General Hammond makes his, what I appointed, his first bad decision. It's uh, considering Tiak. <laughs> you did the air quotes again. <laughs> Didn't my tone of voice imply the air quotes? I would not count on that. Okay, so Hammond makes his first, from the viewer's perspective, questionable decision. We are at this point supposed to question the authority behind his orders, which can quite plainly be seen in O'Neill pointing it out for us obnoxiously. Um, we're in Hammond's office, witnessing a conversation between Hammond and O'Neill about Tiog. Hammond makes a point of suggesting that to find a proper way to work in an aesthetic on Kowalski, uh, they should do experiments on Tiog. Um, that Tiog does of his own free will as he's very, very cooperative, to which we will come later, because I think that too has some problematic implications. For now, I... Oh, I'm curious to hear about this. About the problematic implications yeah. of Tilk's uh, unquestioning cooperation? I, I'm curious to hear about this in detail. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I have opinions on that. Um, Obviously. Because I believe that Tilk gets a redemption arc in this episode, which is, in my opinion, completely unnecessary because he has nothing to be redeemed from. Um, however, this is more about Hammond, who I believe does need a redemption arc after his next sentence, because he considers, furthermore, shipping Tilk off to a faraway scientific lab for further experiments. Of course, O'Neill objects as he now has developed some loyalty towards Tilk because he helped them escape. But still, Hammond stands his ground. I'll be making sure to convey it's not exactly his opinion that this should happen to Tilk, but his hands are somewhat tied because the Pentagon said so. The writers sure make sure that we know all the bad decisions that are made are not of his own mind. Exactly. Here we see a further construction of Hammond as what I called the exception. Hammond as the direct superior of O'Neill is to be seen as the good guy above whom is just troubling bureaucracy really and bad leadership. But he is not like that. And I believe that is fundamentally problematic for two reasons. Number one, it's not quite realistic to just have this one, in our case, very important superior, because we're in contact with him regularly, to be the sole person who is somehow not sexist, not speciesist, in any ways kind of morally apt for the situation. And furthermore, I think it is somewhat uninteresting for the narrative. I think it would be way more fruitful to explore the difficulties our protagonist has, as O'Neill now has developed loyalties to Tilk, who I'm pretty sure he by now sees as a brother in arms, 
which may sometimes conflict with his loyalties towards his military duties. We spent the last two episodes criticizing the depiction of sexism and the likes. Now you are saying that Hammond being not sexist and being an overall good character is not realistic. But we are watching a science fiction show, so why is it problematic to have a character being depicted as such a morally flawless force? I think that is an interesting question. And I would argue this is about the position of power Hammond is in. Because I do not think it would be problematic to have the exceptionally morally apt character in there. And we do see that in more characters than just Hammond, I think. But particularly Hammond's lack of sexism and speciesism allows us to ignore a lot of problems that come with people in powerful positions who hold such prejudices. This way, we can have the sexist camaraderie of um, stunt soldier one and two. In the last episode we talked about, we had that meeting where Carter was introduced and she was treated derogatorily by her fellow comrades. That sounds communist, but I don't give a shit. Oh no, communism. <laughs> I mean, if you regard Stargate, I think that is pretty much what it's saying. But yeah, so you can have at the same time the depiction of day-to-day -day sexism without really reflecting what day-to-day -day sexism means when exerted in privileged positions. Because Hammond never does it. Hammond is not sexist, and therefore there is no systemic problem here. Of course, we have the other male perceived soldiers being dicks, but it's not really important because they're on the same level or lower than Carter, so she can just fix that by herself. And that is, in my opinion, a destructive narrative because that is not how our society works. We do have sexist and speciesist and racist superiors and we have to find a way to deal with that and we have to find a way of addressing that problem. And I think that Stargate misses an opportunity here to point exactly that out and maybe figure out how to handle that situation. Would you disagree? I don't disagree with your general points at all. I'm just wondering if this is the path this show could go down right now, um, when they are still exploring the main story that is to happen outside of our world. I do think that we could use characters with more layers and more nuances, although I would put the focus on those layers on our main characters, as in especially Sam Carter, Daniel Jackson, and, well, I mean, we are starting to get layers for Colonel O'Neill. I think a... I think so far Colonel O'Neill is the only one with layers. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think Hammond and his trope of being the father that protects all of his children in the SGC <laughs> um, functions in Q 
keeping our mind on the main story and not having to deal with the surrounding problematics of bureaucracy and the general military construct. Is the point clearly made? Yes, and I disagree with it. Oh, that's fine. Um, I think that you can actually easily deploy Hammond as being a little more ambivalent in his decisions and a little more problematic for the team and still manage to keep the main story going. One example in this particular case would be that he agrees wholeheartedly with shipping Teal'c off. Uh, what happens then? Our team helps disguise Teal'c. I would generally like to see them having more luggage when they leave for space because just walking through the gate seems kind of reckless. You could hide him in there, stage an escape, they would start searching Earth and they could free Tilk and if he wanted to, he could be part of the mission or he wouldn't be. And we would still remain with this concept of not every decision made by direct authority being correct. I could see this storyline playing out once we have a more deeply characterized main group. For now, I think the characters are too blank to tell this story convincingly. I would argue that we have seen O'Neill form some kind of bond with Teal'c. I think this happens rather fast for him when he considers someone as a part of the team of soldiers he leads. And I think he did do that on the planet they escaped from. Chulak, I think? Chulak, yes. Yes. So I believe that O'Neill has enough convincing motivation to try this. And I think his team trusts him enough for that to be convincing motivation for them to, after maybe a one-minute speech, agree with him and help. We could also see struggles of command in there, but loyalty finally overpowering it, giving, therefore, another opportunity for the other characters to get more developed. To me personally, that is the more enticing story. Oh yeah, I can see that. For now, let's move on with the story. Hey, editing lilts here. As another proof that intention and outcome are not the same, I just listened to the podcast and had to criticize, if not revoke, my plot idea here. The problem with my suggestion is that it would lead to another white savior arc, which this story truly has enough of. Um, I am sorry, that was an incompetent idea i guess and uh, yeah let me know if you like the story the way it is or if you have ideas which are less problematic than mine um yeah thank you for listening and see you soon kowalski is now getting checked by dr nimziki oh is this before o'neill meets with tilk in the prison cell because otherwise i still have something to add to that i'm sorry um, no, I think you're right. The conversation between Jack and Teal happens first. Okay, it's just a very quick one. Um, I wanted to emphasize that I like the connection of brothers in arms O'Neill forms with Teal because I think it is very in character for O'Neill. And I would argue that his his instinct to protect the people he thinks are 
part of his team. Um, I I found that very convincing. I found that gave the character a bit a bit more graspable likability. Um, but I do not quite like the conversation O'Neill has with Teal'c in this scene because O'Neill does see the flaws in his commandment. He does wholeheartedly disagree with Hammond and he does think it's unjust to hold Teal'c prisoner. But still, he he says, for example, they need to get to know you better and it kind of sounds like Teal'c has to prove himself. And while that might be the perspective of his superiors, I find it questionable whether O'Neill actually thinks that. I doubt he does. And the, the narrative here is a bit problematic because it's this all aliens are inherently bad until proven otherwise and you have to make sure you're seen as the exception. But I also get that O'Neill here is in a precarious diplomatic situation. I thought it was made very much clear that this is not the opinion of O'Neill, but the opinion of the Pentagon and the military he represents. And isn't that a very realistic depiction of the military? Mm, yes, it is is definitely realistic to make sure their point is understood. I just wonder if we have seen so much deviance from O'Neill so far, whether he would have phrased that differently. On the other hand, he so far doesn't seem to be the most emotionally literate character. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe that just got lost in translation for me. <laughs> Talking of emotional literacy, I really do like that, given the absolute lack of female characters in the show, at least the male-depicted characters are, in this episode specifically, very open with their emotions, uh, talking about O'Neill and Kowalski, and in parts, O'Neill with Tialg. Um... But we'll get to that later. Oh, actually, this scene has one of those moments, in my opinion, too. Because Teal'c points out that O'Neill is not afraid of him. And in answer to that, O'Neill says that this is because of Teal'c's actions and not because of his own unfeeling, manly competence. And I really like that because that is in my opinion already showing that they do have some sort of personal bond here. They are already at some level of trust and they do somewhat confide into each other. And I would, yes, exactly, argue that this is an emotional scene of two brothers in arms starting to get to know each other. Of course, the Kowalski arc is way more profound. Okay, so let's go back to Kowalski. He is at the doctor's now. Exactly. And he doesn't know he's possessed, which immediately made me question, what about Skara and Shari? Because they did seem, of course, wholly subdued by the alien possessing them. But it did not seem like there, there was a lack of awareness even possible at that level. 
We get an explanation for this later, which I like. At this point, I was just a little confused as to how the dynamics work. Can the alien hide its presence? How exactly does that take form? Um, Kowalski goes cuckoo, according to my notes. And as the doctor... <laughs> I assume you're talking about the alien taking over? Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Um, as the doctor goes to examine his neck, Kowalski kills him. A very casual reaction to an examination, as we all know. After Kowalski kills the doctor, he goes straight to the embarkation room, where he is noticed by Carter and Jackson, who are talking in the control room. Carter gives the order to get O'Neill and Hammond to see what's going on. And after the whole team meets up in the embarkation room and Kowalski slowly regains consciousness from his possession, he is escorted by O'Neill, who now calls him Charlie, to the doctor's office. Finally there, we find out the doctor somehow mysteriously is absent. And then we cut to Colonel Kennedy meeting Teal'c. Haha. <laughs> I have a trivia for that scene. Is or, it a trope? No, no, it's not. Uh, it's a movie mistake. Uh, I love those. Oh, tell me about it. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I can't think about trivia without thinking about this podcast I'm listening to. Nothing but static. Every time I want to tell you about some random facts, my brain shouts, I'm a give you some trivia. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. We talked about that. And I was adamant about really wanting to steal that. You guys are geniuses. I need this in my life. I'm Let's trip it up! <laughs> That's cool, too. The other one's better. The other one's pure gold. I love it. Bad rhyming. Mm. <laughs> you heard it here, guys. Nothing but static. Check him out. Uh <laughs> <laughs> a tiny podcast making advertisements for another tiny podcast. This is hilarious. I mean, they've been doing this for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, that's more hilarious. Don't I mean, come on. That's like us making advertisement for Potterless. Good idea, brah. <laughs> sure, okay. Schubert would be thankful. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, which? Oh, yeah. Uh, Tiog. Um In this interrogation, his symbol on his head is upside down which is really something someone should have noticed but apparently they didn't so um talking about the symbol on his head we have learned since that the jafar are descendants of humans so do you have thoughts on the symbol on what it could mean what it could represent how it could have come to be there i I'm not sure I remember exactly how the symbol looked. I think I it was show an you oval and some lines, but don't quote me on it. Hmm. That would be an interesting evolutionary development. And they are born with it, right? It is not an addition, or we just don't know that. We don't know that. Because... Given that they are enslaved by the Goa'uld, I would also say that is a possibility, a branding mark, which is very dark, but very possible. Interesting. I mean, there are ovals and lines, so 
I guess that worked out. Hmm. I have no idea what it is supposed to represent, to be honest. Um, if I would have to make a guess, I would probably assume it's again related to something from ancient Egyptian culture, perhaps. Maybe hieroglyph. Although it does not look like a hieroglyph. I don't know. I have no clue. It it gives me vibes of a scale, perhaps, because of that wriggly thing in the middle. But that could also just refer to like the ovals being the outer shell of the Jafar's body and the wriggly thing being the alien inside. Hi, yeah. Editing Punk here. Intrigued by the idea of the symbol being rooted in hieroglyphs, I looked into that. I couldn't find a hieroglyphic pendant to the symbol on Tiok's head, but I did find this. Apep, which is the name that would have mainly been used instead of Apophis, was often depicted as a snake. I found one particular image with Apep in snake form that could very well have been used as inspiration for the symbol. A link to the picture and my sources will be in the description. Now back to the pod. I have no proper theory on this. What I do find interesting is that the Jafar are supposed to be of human d descendants. Yeah, that's a word I know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that makes me question, for how many species does that count? Because... We will, in this meeting, talk about the Tauri, which are supposed to be the, the primitive people of Earth. Our <laughs> the ancestors. The human beings. Yes. Exactly. And it is said that this was the most ancient population the Gua'uld ever colonized, if I am correct. But then they left, and therefore Hang on. Earth had most time to develop. There is a tale of a primitive world the Goa'uld discovered millennia ago, the Tauri, first world, where forms of this type evolved. It is said that Goa'uld harvested among the primitives. Some became Goa'uld hosts, others became Jafar. The rest were taken as slaves and seeded among the stars to serve them. But that world has been lost for centuries. Oh, so that world just doesn't exist. That's, that's Earth. That is Earth, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that made me think, because, I mean, we're going to get to the problematic, we're going to get to the problematic implications of Earth being the one and only savior of the universe later. But for now, I'd like to focus on the idea that Every alien we will encounter that is not of the Gua'uld is likely now to be of human descendants. Yeah, that's a fair assumption. And I think that has some interesting implications because we have this thing called human rights. And now it is not only by the logic of morals sensible to to apply those to other sentient beings but by now we also have the the weird connection of being of the same species 
or having been of the same species. And I wonder whether that will change the approach Earth's officials take in interacting with aliens other than the Goa'uld. Also, I find it kind of weird that we we basically have these, like we we have the super ancient Tauri, who are technically we, the humans, um, or our predecessors, however you want to take it, and the Goa'uld, and nothing else. And every other variety just derives from the humans scattered by the Goa'uld. If... I'm not really sure how I feel about that yet. I just know it's interesting. I did not expect it. I think I would have preferred if there was more variety of origin. But yeah, here we are. I want to go back to the point you made before, talking about human rights for all the human... What's the opposite of ancestor? Isn't it descendants? Did I do that descendants. wrong? Descendants. I want to go back to the point you made before about human rights for all the human descendants throughout the galaxy because they talk about that in this episode. They talk about Teal being held against his will and being supposed to be used as a scientific guinea pig. And Jack O'Neill tries to argue against that. Their counterpoint is that he has no human rights because he is no human. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that is a precarious argument to begin with, because we could argue, like, why do we give human rights? What was our intention here? I mean, sure, it is helpful in interacting peacefully, I'll give you that, not punching each other in the face, accepting each other's religions, etc. Great idea. I'm all for it. Um, why do we not extend human rights to animals? Some people would argue, just to exploit them. Yeah, fair. That is something humans do. <laughs> I just wanted to say, uh, because they are tasty. <laughs> <laughs> well, and are you wrong? Um, no, but also because some rights are just not D I, exactly. I, uh, you cannot, there are some rights you cannot exert without a certain amount of consciousness. For example, the right to vote is not a very exercisable by a guinea pig you you there are things to work around that and it would demand its own podcast to go in the question of representing animals which we are not doing here but when confronted with the jaffa we are concerned with sentient and vocal individuals who are obviously not lacking in any comparison to human beings when it comes to those parameters of reflection and sentience important for the question of whether they should have rights. That was too long and too complex. Yep. What do I do about that? <laughs> Rephrase it. <laughs> All of it? Okay, I have a clue for you. Every time you think about having to rephrase a sentence and then think, all of it? Yes, that's exactly the reason why you should rephrase it. <laughs> You're making a valid point and I do not like it. Okay, so there are reasons we limit the rights we give to animals. One of them is a guinea pig has no use for the right to vote. It could have perhaps 
but that is an entire podcast of its own on the ethics of animals and representation. What I want to focus on here is that Tialk and his species, the Jaffa, share enough characteristics with humans to argue that they should have human rights. And I think that their ancestry, being humans, furthers that point even more. Because oftentimes, the question of allotting human rights is dependent solely on being part of the species, which is a dumb argument. But in this case, it is one that might aid us in furthering alien liberation. I feel the strong need to add an explanation to the insertion I made a bit earlier about my comment on animals not having the same rights as us because they are tasty. Now here's a tangent to come. Oh no, it's gonna be short. Um, Depends on whether I answer. <laughs> <laughs> At least I'm honest. Uh. I tend to think that sarcasm in such sentences should be obvious and noticeable by everybody, but knowing our society, it is not, so I am making it abundantly clear. I do not think any being, being of good taste to others, is a good justification for removing their rights. Yeah, Pankan, I totally disagree on that. If I come to eat human flesh and it's tasty, I'm going to devour you all. Do I need to flag that as sarcasm? I hope not. But this is the internet, so here we go. <laughs> Am I a destructive ball? No, I think, I mean, human flesh is the one kind of flesh I would be eating to eat. Human flesh is the one kind of flesh I would be willing to eat because a human could actually give me consent for that. I have weird anecdotes on this topic and we are not going there. But yeah. Oh, uh, I'm curious. <laughs> a friend of mine promised a former friend of mine his pinky toe. Oh, I've, I've heard uh, of that story. consummation. I've heard of that story. <laughs> I just forgot. Yeah, yes, awesome. I don't think they'll ever pull through, which, weak. Um, <laughs> those outtakes would be hilarious. I think I want to keep a lot of this in. In the podcast? Yes. Oh my god, yeah. And this is why I review the episodes because before Punk puts them online. Oh, I, I'm having so many questionable takes here. Um, let's go back to my... I think my... that's fine, actually. Okay. I mean... <laughs> I see why you think that's fine. <laughs> Most of the criticism we have received are my political positions. <laughs> because I seem to talk most of the time. <laughs> well, you, you are the expert here. You are the one with the actual scientific background to talk about uh, And I do want to emphasize... Sorry. And I do want to emphasize I am not speaking as a scientist here anyways. This is not the role I am taking. This is a podcast I am doing for fun. I have some theoretical background, but this is 
take everything you hear here with a pinch of salt. Just like if you encounter spoon. some random layman on the street and they say something about that. Maybe take it with a bigger grain of salt. <laughs> Just because... Like a ladle. Yeah, exactly. Because I have some theoretical background. Am I doing extensive research for this? No. Is the layman? Probably not. <laughs> okay. Um, Continuing with my hot takes. <laughs> yes. Um, Kennedy is our classic bureaucratic antagonist. We are supposed to see him as as the counterpart to our sensible and pragmatic heroes, in somewhat including Hammond. Oh, and I thought he was so likable. <laughs> yeah, he really sounds like Punk's type. Unquestionably just <laughs> sacrificing individuals for the greater good in the name of authority alone. That really sounds like you. I guess that's why you call yourself punk. <laughs> All jokes aside, he did make some at least interesting philosophical standpoints in the discussion that we witnessed now. Um, I am sure you made some notes on those. Would you elaborate? I did. Um, actually, he points out an interesting philosophical dilemma in the question of how to handle Kowalski's being possessed. He refers to the Gua'uld in Kowalski as intelligent life, which I think is pretty much a first of an honest and direct acknowledgement of that fact that we are talking about sentience in the same form as human reflection, basically, which is something humans have never encountered on Earth. So this brings a lot of new ethic troubles. So th the difficulty arises from the question of whether to operate on Kowalski or not. Not operating would be, I'm not sure whether it's already established, not in the interest of Kowalski, because he wants to, quote, die as himself. No, that happens later on. Okay, but we can already point out that the consent of the individual involved may be of importance. Um, he brings up the point that the operation could risk to kill one intelligent form of life for certain, the Gua'uld, while risking to kill Kowalski, another intelligent form of life, too. I think this situation has interesting similarities to unwanted pregnancy, which could be explored further if we like to. Do you have some notes on that right now? I would wing this. Oh, please go on. Because I have, um, I have thought about it, but I wasn't sure how relevant it was. I know, so, I would love to hear that, especially given the current situation in the US of A, which... Yikes. So, uh, in this case, it's a little different. Usually, cases are discussed of um, the pregnancy endangering the uh, pregnant individual and or the fetus. All people shouting about the words pregnant individual, hear me loud and clear, fuck off. 
this podcast has a non-binary host. If you're going to complain about that sentence, I am so sorry. You're just so in the wrong room. Continuing. In this case, we are more talking about the question of an abortion risking not only the life of the fetus, but also of the pregnant person. And I think it is very interesting that this... How do you say Schlipsträger in English? <laughs> <laughs> this is a very particular term in German. And it is a derogatory term for a bureaucratic fucktard. <laughs> can I say that? I think I can say that. We are. I told you I would keep a lot of this in, but I would love it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, oh, wait. Does it exist? Probably not. Mm, I'm there is, there's the... The English equivalent, um, they like they refer to people as suits. Yeah, but that is less. That is less derogatory than what I mean. <laughs> it's it for sure is less in it's it for sure it for sure is less intense. Yeah, I'm gonna stick with Schlipsträger, and you're just gonna have to bear with me here. Um, or well, bureaucratic fucktard is also an option. So, I find it quite interesting that we have this bureaucratic fucktard discussing the moral implications of this situation. And Kowalski, he's just not present. He's just not part of the discussion. We only figure out his point on this later on. And I think that is an interesting similarity to discussions about difficult moral aspects, for example, of abortions. but. Pregnancy in general, really, when life is at stake, especially from the pregnant person. And we here see something that is actually a very good depiction of discourse, which is usually pregnant people aren't all that included in that discussion. And it's not so much about the individual perspective of the person concerned as it is about societal demands, which I think is troubling. And I think Stargate actually does a really good job at somewhat pointing that out because we are not supposed to like bureaucratic fucktard. What I do not like is that he's the only person pointing out that the Goa Uld actually is a sentient, intelligent life form. And we're we're not really supposed to like that point. I think the depiction of the board discussing Kowalski's fate on the operation table is very fitting as a simile to people talking about pregnancies. Sadly, in this specific case, I don't think they did that intentionally. Very great excellent, though. Oh, yes, exactly. And as we have talked about the more unfortunate accidents here, I would like to point out this very fortunate <laughs> accident and applaud to it. That was a great move. Yes, even done by accident. Um, I would also like to point out that there is a significant difference that uh, the simile contains because the Goa'uld is already an independent, sentient, intelligent being and the fetus is completely dependent on its womb. And in its state of being a fetus, not intelligent. Exactly. That's that's basically what I try to convey with fetus. But you're right to point out that this should be mentioned explicitly. I sometimes forget that people dispute that. <laughs> <laughs> oh Why? My God. I'm having all the sass today. 
Um, oh, I love that bit. So yeah, keep that in mind when considering this short tangent on Star Trek and pregnancy. I think that concludes our discussion on the table. Now we go back to Dr. Warner and Kowalski's pre-abortion checkup. What happens there? The MRI. Oh, yes, where Which... we see how uh, <laughs> the Gwaltwald has basically bored into his central nervous system, right? Exactly. Yeah, that was gross. Uh, did you notice anything special about the MRI depicted in the scene? It only contained his head, but farther than that, no. Okay, it's it's it's, it's a small thing. It's uh, it's 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 computer tomography. It's it's not an MRI. It's it's a different thing. That's what I thought. Aren't MRIs those huge tubes? Like you have, I think they always look a little like those uh, those solar studio cabins. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, those are the things I mean. So, yeah, this is the first time we are seeing the gold conveniently colored in because the machine can differentiate between the human material and the foreign stuff in his body. Um, and then the gold takes over again, attacking the doctor and a few others and then taking Carter hostage. Talk me through that. Oh yeah, that was really great. I loved that. Carter really makes use of her military expertise in this scene by precisely doing nothing. She doesn't throw a single punch. I mean, I am an idiot and I think I would be less defenseless in this situation simply because I would go for his crotch. It's ridiculous. But Lils, Kowalski is controlled by a Gwa'uld. They are so strong. How could Carter possibly have done anything against that? She could have tried. She doesn't even do that. <laughs> I mean, I come on, it's ridiculous. That is that is not it's not even in character, right? Like she she's not a pessimist or anything. She immediately later goes in to tell Jackson that there is still hope for Shari. Um she is very motivated and eager for this mission. You cannot tell me that her reaction to he's possessed by an evil alien would be, oh my God, I swoon on Neil, save me. Which, I mean, he fails, but he tries and he doesn't end up as the lady in distress. Absolutely. I do think it's absolutely fine for the girl to overwhelm Carter, but it's really odd that, that she doesn't even try any form of attack against the girl. Exactly, I agree. And then we have the Gua'uld taking her hostage and fleeing with her to the elevator in order to reach the Stargate to get back to their planet. We haven't discussed the matter of alien gender. That would be somewhat interesting. We haven't discussed the topic. We had Ra gendering himself as a he and his love as a she when she was looking for a new host. Yeah, so it is not only interculturally invariant to be heteronormative, it is really an interspecies thing. Just taking notes here. Um, very interesting, because so far we have not seen gender differentiating take place 
in between the Goa'uld when they don't have vessels. On the other hand, they never don't have vessels. So who knows what's going on there? It's quite interesting. Maybe they adapt to the gender expression and conceptualization of the species they take hold of. That would be interesting. Oh, I... This this the show has a slow build up, but I really I'm looking forward for some discussions I know we are going to have in the future. I am very intrigued what is going to happen. Um and I am very patient and I mean I can fall in love with shows albeit criticizing them fiercely. One of my current favorites actually is um problematic would be an understatement, I think. And I love it as fiercely as I shout at the TV. Trust me. They are talking about Supernatural. Oh, God. There is the sexism, the racism, the blatant speciesism, the the vast amount of daddy issues. I could go on about this Dude, for ages. Dude, queer baiting. Oh, okay, okay. No, no. I, For the sake of my sanity, we cannot talk about that here. I am contemplating making my own podcast about this, so we are reaching abnormal levels. Once Kowalski is restrained again, there's a really lovely conversation between him and O'Neill. I know this whole thing is a bit tropey in itself, but I like the emotion in the scene. Um, yes, I really like that in this scene, O'Neill shifted to first name basis. Oh, he calls uh, Kowalski by his first name throughout the whole episode. Oh, I didn't notice. And that, that is interesting. That's that's a nice kind of, I want to almost say slow build element here. Um, it's which I'm it's kind of not fond only of. a build, it's a tactic to make the relationship to Kowalski a more personal one and to make him more sympathetic towards the audience. Exactly. And I like that storytelling instrument. It's well-wielded. Um, I especially like about this scene that we do see Kowalski uttering his wishes as to how to handle the possession by the Gua'uld making clear that he would rather, I think, die a soldier than live a villain? I think it's not as important to him to die as a soldier. He's very willing to die as a patient, which is not the same thing. Oh, that's fair. Uh, but it is important to him to not be in a position where he serves the enemy. Yeah, exactly. And I do think that's a very understandable motivation. Um, what I especially liked about this scene, that Kowalski cries. It is highly emotional. It is a struggle for him to have this conversation, even with O'Neill, who he is close with. And I like how that points to the emotional struggle of the situation for Kowalski in general. But I also like how that points to the difficulty of expressing emotions in general, particularly in this context being perceived as cisad white male. Also, I like the way the crying looks. It's not ugly sobbing crying, but it's not only the single held back manly tear as well. Uh, he does have red eyes and he does really struggle with the emotions and they don't hold back on showing that. I think there are scenes in which 
ugly sobbing crying is on call. I don't think this was one of them. Oh, okay. Because yeah, sure. this was, while it was a deeply unnerving emotional moment, it was also kind of quiet. And it, as personal as this conversation was, they were not alone in the room. And I do think that what little we get to see of Kowalski's fear and distress in this situation is also showing his restraint. It is showing that he is willing to display this emotion in front of O'Neill, but he's not exactly willing to have the rest of them notice. Maybe the laboratory is empty at that point, but I think the watching room isn't. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's a great scene overall. Um, I really like Jay Akavone. Jay Akavone? Akavone? Let me see how that name is pronounced. It was correct. Jay Akavone. I especially want to talk about Jay Akavone's acting in this one. Um, because as an actor portraying a character that really is not seen for a really long time. I mean, he is dying in the second real episode. He really does do a good job showing his character's emotions. Yes, I agree. Um, I think we feel strong sympathy for Kowalski at this point, which is a tough thing to achieve after one movie, technically kind of two movies and one episode. That is not an easy achievement. Especially considering that in the first movie, he wasn't all too likable. And portrayed by a different actor. Yes, that too, but who wasn't really? I, in general, liked the ethical conflict about how to handle Kowalski. <laughs> Another thing I liked about this scene was when Kowalski turned back to being possessed, the Gwauld taking control again, and uh, O'Neill's reaction to it is i don't know somehow one of my favorite things about the episode when um he talks about it with his superiors he just says hey you just got a little mouthy and i i just love o'neill o'neill got so much better since the series started and he has his new actor and i'm guessing someone else is writing him because all of a sudden he got kind of hilarious Oh, the original writers, the ones who did the movie, have nothing to do with the show whatsoever. Yeah, that's noticeable. We, we talked about that in the last episode. <laughs> you are now witnessing what Punk and I refer to my chicken brain. My memory is about as permeatable. Now that would mean that you get through to it, right? Okay, then it is about as permeatable as, I don't know, concrete. <laughs> Sure, okay. Oh, we don't have to leave that in. I can casually insult myself all the way I want to. Thank you. Um, yes. What exactly is the rest of that scene now? We gets... get... I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, continue. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay. We get General Hammond's approvement regarding the decision to operate on Kowalski. I don't think we really need to talk about Hammond having to approve 
the operation. I think that is inherent to the military structure. Albeit being problematic, as we just pointed out, the similarities to be seen here. And then we get to Tiog as he offers his body to be experimented on so they can find anesthetics for the operation. Yeah, and I must say, um, I have problems with that scene and that general arc on various accounts. So, I like that Tilk is generally helpful and caring. Not only O'Neill has developed some caring towards Tilk, but Tilk also cares about the team. And I think that does make sense within limits. He he left behind his entire former life to help them escape. And I think he has some strong moral convictions about the question what is right and wrong here for him to do or has been. So I do think that's in character. And I think that is not the worst choice. I have some problems with the way this arc is depicted because I think this is intended to read to us, the audience, as a redemption arc. And I do not think Tilk needs a redemption arc, really. I would counter that this is not supposed to redeem Tilk for us, but for the superiors in the military. Jack said before to Tilk himself that he will have a chance to prove his loyalty. And I think this is the opportunity that is given to him. Yes, I know. And I think that's a dumb point to make because he already proved his allegiance. In any case, in my opinion, the people who now need to prove that they're not hostile is the US military. Tilk already helped them. It's kind of their turn to stretch out an olive branch. Is that realistic? No. Absolutely fair. The storyline goes with the realistic point here. And yeah, point taken. That is true. But still, I think that this perspective of Tilk needing to prove himself even further after leaving everything behind he knows. I, I repeat, can you imagine that? That is insane. That is some type of commitment. And I do not think the series problematizes that accordingly. And they could have through the voice of O'Neill, which they didn't. This is where Kowalski says out loud that he doesn't want to wake up not being Kowalski. Anything to say to that? No. All right. Makes sense as an arc. I like it. Good narrative. We get to the operation. Everything <laughs> seems to work out fine. Oh, I wanted to say something to Kowalski's choice because it is respected and I like that. Oh yeah, I thought about that. This is another example for Hammond making the right decision, agreeing that he will shoot Kowalski should he wake up not as being himself, and then the show giving us a solution that does not force Hammond to do a wrong because Hammond does not know that Kowalski is not himself as he wakes up. 
Oh, that's a good point. I didn't notice. You're right. Awesome. I I generally have started calling Hammond Mr. The Exception TM in my notes. But you not having noticed this is, in my opinion, a sign for the show having done a good job in this case. I agree. I mean, just because the character in general is a somewhat, I would argue, problematic trope, um, doesn't mean every single decision he makes and every single turn he takes is inherently unbelievable or problematic. And yeah, I would agree. In in this particular scenario, they wrap it up nicely and this can be done. The context of his general character is where the problem lies. The operation, quote-unquote, succeeded. Everything is back in order. So now Tiolk can be shipped off to a research lab. Ah, yes. Is this where Tiolk is called an incubator? Oh, I can't find out where exactly that was. Hang on. Maybe that was in the conversation with Colonel Kennedy. Because I think Kennedy is the one who says it. It is. Well... Let's consider that for a moment. These infant Goa'uls, if they are so young, so fragile in their larval state, that they require a, uh, a, uh, I'm sorry, what was it you called yourself? Jafar. <laughs> for want of a better translation, what, incubator? How is it that they are so intelligent? Everything about this is completely disgusting. Um, yeah, so, as I said, we're we're not supposed to like bureaucratic fucktard. This scene is by far the most apt indicator for that. <laughs> I love that we agreed to do this episode in order, and now we're just jumping back and forth in our points. But that's just how we talk, I guess. So, let's talk about this. Bear with us. We're new to this. I don't even know whether this already happened, and that's why we should have already talked about it, or whether this scene is later on and that's why we shouldn't yet be talking about this oh you know this is this is a way before when they are sitting at the table discussing how to continue unfortunate um yeah maybe i should start pausing more during the episodes writing down which scenes i am referring to my notes are chaos however this is an important point in my opinion because we we have the fucktard who is being very rude and (laughs) translation fucktard equals Kennedy. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> I have resigned from calling O'Neill douche because I'm starting to like him. Judge me. <laughs> so you think the same thing is going to happen with Kennedy? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think my insults may get fiercer as we continue. Um, if we get to see him again, which I hope we do not, but apparently that is too much to ask for. Um, yeah, so, Kennedy. I think Kennedy is problematic in so far as that he's like our one racist character, you know? We we had the stunt soldiers number one and two who were insulting Carter and being quite sexist. And every problematic thing O'Neill ever did was kind of disregarded and he he was some, like... The friendly neighborhood boomer, I think. <laughs> we were supposed to boomer sympathize. Man, boomer man. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. We need to keep that in. Um, yeah, we were 
supposed to like O'Neill's not quite enjoyable comments on Carter. And I think that there are some problematic attitudes towards Teal'c that we we aren't supposed to necessarily like, but we are at least to, supposed to empathize with them. We're supposed to see Hammond's distress and his reluctance at treating Teal'c as he would kind of deserve. Um, so instead of reflecting this treatment of Teal'c, we, we get this Kennedy, this overblown racist who calls him an incubator, making him a complete and utter object. And I think that is... It isn't intended to distract from... I mean, you can't call it microaggressions, it's macroaggressions, definitely. But um, it is to to contrast the behavior of other characters towards Teal'c. And I think we are supposed to dislike Kennedy for what he does, but we are not necessarily inclined to question how the rest of the base treats him. In this scene, we not only learn about the quote-unquote incubator function of the Jafar, we also learn about the genetic memory of the Gua'uld. Yes, and I love that. I must say, I think genetic memory is an interesting device, um, especially given that, if I understood it correctly here, it does not include a hive mind, which has interesting implications for how that genetic memory works. I guess it means that the Gua'uld is born with all knowledge their species had so far upon their birth. I don't think it is all knowledge their species had. I think it's all knowledge their ancestors had. So their specific genetic line? Yes. That is interesting because there is a genetic pool. So there is the question of recessive and dominant genes... Does everything in the pool get activated? Or only everything that was active in their ancestors? How does that work? I, I didn't get the problem. Mm. Like, how is that relevant for um, inherited information? What does direct ancestry in this case mean? Does it need to be a direct lineage? Yeah, I think so. So I would have my parents' memories, but not my aunt's. Yes. Okay. I imagined this to be bigger, to be honest. I think this already is a very interesting way of handling genetic knowledge. And I think it makes the plot a lot easier in that the Gua'uld can have more variety within them because they are not all based on the same pool of information. And uh, also they're more easily beatable. So I can see that as a reason for this limitation too. But it has not been explicitly stated. And No, at this I'm... point we can't be sure of any of these informations. Yes, and I am actually very curious to find out where this will lead us. Because to me this is kind of an interesting question because everyone on this table is just like yeah yeah genetic memory interesting <laughs> and i'm like but but how does it work do we have no questions here really 
<laughs> I think that one's missing in my list of tropes I will talk about later. But yeah, it's the let's just not ask questions one. <laughs> oh, that is a trope? I love that. I don't know, but it should be. Yes, really, because sometimes I'm like, am I the dumb one here? Or what is happening? Very interesting. Um, okay, we now have talked about Tilk as an incubator. So this is about the objectification of Tilk. In the spirit of that, I would like to jump forward to the experiments on Tilk when it comes to the anesthetic of Korski. And I think to understand that scene better, it is nice to contrast it with how the medical attention towards Carter and the medical attention towards Kowalski is dealt with. Okay, go on. So, Kowalski gets something I have referred to in my notes as an empathy arc. Uh, we can see that in the scene where he cries in front of O'Neill, but we can also see that later on as he's in the waking room and he has this deep bonding moment with O'Neill. Is that after the operation? No, after the operation, there's only the gold. Yes? Okay. Yes, Kowalski then... dies on the operation table. They make that point in the show. You're right. Okay, so Kowalski gets what I called in my notes an empathy arc. He gets a very emotional talk with O'Neill before he goes to the operation table. And then on the operation table, he sheds a tear. Whereas Teal's operation in search for a proper anesthetic is treated quite clinically. Teal'c is not feeling any pain as his operation is administered. There's no one by his side really to care about him in this moment and we're we're somewhat detached from his experience even if he does not feel physical pain i'm sure this would be a situation of uncertainty where it would be at least nice to have someone he actually trusts nearby which he doesn't and that is not really something that is emphasized for the audience to notice Carter is a different case entirely. She's knocked out in the elevator, I think. Yeah, she hits her head badly and probably has a concussion from that. Yeah, which is not nice. We never even see her injured. There's just nothing. So I know that there is limited time when shooting a series and there's limited time in what to put on screen in the end but i think at least a minor acknowledgement of that would have been kind of nice so there's there's this big contrast in how we treat the pain of different characters carter's is just not important perhaps because it's so minor um would also regard the interesting question of how People perceived as women in pain are regarded by medical personnel. There are interesting studies uh, on that. Um, then there's Tilk, who is, again, fundamentally constructed as other, who seems to be unable to feel pain, but also his emotional and psychological needs are not regarded. And then we have Kowalski. And here I must say Kowalski's arc is kind of good, actually, because his physical needs do matter, but the main focus actually is his emotional distress. And that is something we do not often see 
in people like soldiers. You mentioned studies. I like to link everything we are talking about. These were non-specific, though. Do you think you can find some or have some in mind that I can add to the show notes? I think I should, at the very least, have a podcast, unfortunately, in German, um, led by medical personnel. But I think if I look into some... Um, critical feminist medical journals i'm going to find something so get back to me on that uh kick me in the ass if i say there's research for that it is my damn job to provide the sources so yeah i'll look that up thank you so um as kowalski woke back up or well the guaold did i was like yay kowalski gets a villain arc I was excited about that. I actually would have much preferred Kowalski being a spy for a while in the team. So you assume from the beginning that... So your assumption was from the beginning that the operation had not been successful? Oh, no. Um, first I thought he died. And then he rose again. And then I was like, yes! Yes, it's not over! Villain arc! Yeah, but what made you think that the world had not been removed? Oh, it felt too easy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that might also be a trope, but it was like, okay, we had this distress and we had the emotional stuff. and But then it was just done. Like, that was a weird story point to make, in my opinion. It just didn't feel right with the narrative. So I, yes, I assumed he was, I didn't necessarily assume Kowalski died for real at that point. Maybe he was just unconscious and the Gua'uld took over, but I did think the Gua'uld just managed to stick around and be a problem. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Then we have the epic final scene of Tilk killing Kowalski, or, well, precisely, the Gua'uld in him, with the aid of the team, by holding his head into the Stargate and then shutting the portal off. Gruesome. Gruesome, yes, very much French Revolution vibes. But did I love that scene? Not gonna lie. Um, I like Tilk getting agency in the killing of Kowalski's corpse, as weird as that sounds. I still think it's unfortunate he gets the redemption arc. Um, but what I liked was that this was a team effort. No one could have done it on their own. This was concerted. O'Neill and Tilk, at least, working together. So, in summary, I do not like how the redemption arc got Tilk there, because I was not the biggest fan of the redemption arc, although I see why it happened. Um, but I am very happy to have Tilk being a full member of the team. And I look forward to this because I think this character has great potential and is actually quite interesting for us. And then we jump to the future, having the whole team of Jack O'Neill, Sam Carter and Daniel Jackson standing in the Stargate room, being commanded by General Hammond and their fourth member, Tiag, joins the team. Cheesy, but I liked it. Some cliches are just worth it. Okay. Um, 
Do you have any more notes on the show? <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure we skipped quite a few things. Yes, actually, it's not that many. Fortunately, um, I would like to have a short rant about Jackson being led on a leash by his dick because he is entirely and utterly focused on Charay. This struck me as super problematic um, because he he just seems to not care for anyone else. Like, Scar is out of his mind. So much is Kowalski. He barely gives a shit. Anyone he ever talks about is Charay. And I do get that this is intended to make us empathize with him. But I personally would have empathized with him way more if he had cared for more than one single individual in what seems to be dangerous obsession. I would also like to quote him. Um, I think he is talking to either Carter or O'Neill. I'm not entirely sure. Um, Jackson says that he can't step to think what Charay's become. And I am very uncomfortable with the phrasing of that statement. Because, especially in the context of her former pretty much rape scene, and then the establishment of her villain arc through being possessed by a Goa'uld, this again gives me villain vibes and victim-blaming vibes. This has this, this narrative of... It's not about what's been done to her, but what she is now. And I think that is a problem in itself in treating this. I don't think I would speak about my beloved that way had this happened to them. Maybe this is a very nuanced and small difference in phrasing. For me, it makes actually a big difference. This phrase just lays focus on her. So, um, Jackson's out of the way. That's great. There is one last thing I would like to point out. We have talked about the Tauri being the the ancestors of humans on Earth and the first people to be abducted and colonized by the Gua'uld. Yes. Precisely. It is argued by Tialk, I think, that in the absence of the Gua'uld after the human ancestors buried the Stargate. Our Earth is the only planet with sentient life capable of reflexive thinking that has advanced enough to stand a chance in fighting the Gua'uld. I'll give you the context of the show for the quote you were talking about um, so you can make your point accordingly. Um, O'Neill, this world is the world you're talking about. Tiag, Ra came here. If our ancestors hadn't rebelled and buried the Stargate, Tiag interrupts, you would have not become strong enough to challenge them. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. That implies we're not the only ones, right? Possibly, at least. We're the only ones we know of right now. Yes. Who are strong enough. Then, um... I think I might concede my point. Kennedy continues, Then the galaxy is populated by the ancient people of Earth. And Hammond explains, 
There could be millions by now. Tialk, then you are their greatest hope. And mine. Well, well, in that case, I do not concede my point. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, the Out show... the turns table. <laughs> the, show, the show gives us the context that allows for other species to have had the same success. But Tialk doesn't see it, and the military guys don't see it as well. Yeah, and... I mean, right now, that that is kind of a fair assumption to be made because um, in case of doubt, you don't just assume a random entity. You, you take the evidence you have given. And the only evidence of advanced weaponry, I guess, seems to be on Earth right now. So that is a point to make sense. Or in the hands of the Goa'uld. Yes, of course, but the colonizers randomly freeing you is technically not something that usually happens. So I see why they do not put hopes on that. So right now we assume Earth is our best, if not only, hope of freeing the galaxy, pretty much. Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. (laughs) You know, I know who Obi-Wan is. I do not understand that reference. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> yep. This is how far my pop cultural knowledge goes. Isn't it fun with me? Um, I mean, that's why we are sitting here watching Stargate for your first time. I would argue the only reason you are affiliated with Stargate is because you're old. And that's generally not common pop cultural knowledge anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Point bitterly taken. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Back to Earth being our only hope. Now, this is in itself, in my opinion, kind of problematic. Always, if you have this singular pinnacle of hope and capability, that is a problem in and on itself, in my opinion. It can make narratives easier to construct, but really it also usually tends to make them lack some depth. Mm. In this particular case, I think we have the problem that Earth is, by the vast majority, represented by people being perceived as white and male. So what we have here, I would argue, is a narrative of white exceptionalism. Um... As Earth is represented in this scenario by U.S. military structures and U.S. leadership, it is basically completely covered right now, at least, as a, air quotes, Western thing. And so I would argue that this constructs a problematic narrative of, yeah, again, Eurocentric and Americanocentric, but really kind of means the same thing, Um, superiority. And I am not too fond of that point. That's it for me for now. So Orientalism, Imperialism and Sexism are probably going to keep being part of the following episodes. Who'd have thought, really? So the next one's called Emancipation. Any thoughts? Oh yeah, I 
I saw that in the very poorly designed DVD menu. Let me tell you, they're not good with menus. Um, and I think I started laughing immediately at Punk saying, Ha! The next episode after this is called Emancipation. I'm pretty sure I don't believe that. Uh, so we'll see what they mean by that. I am intrigued. I would really like to see an epic and autonomous uh, freeing of Tulag or something similar. The last episode was introduced with a very clear story and the title made very much clear what it was going to be about. This one is a little bit less obvious. Do you have any theories what the theme or story of the next episode might be? I think this could be about Skara and Sharae being freed or freeing themselves because we are talking emancipation here and I I do have some opinions on that term um, from the possession of the Gua'uld. I think you might be missing a somewhat relevant bit of information we got in the last episode that I think gives a different vibe for the upcoming episode. Um, at the beginning, O'Neill and Kowalski have a little discussion about who gets to visit which planet. They have a list of numerous planets now they are going to visit and this episode ends with them heading off to one of those random planets on that list. Oh, they're forming a rebel alliance. That is so much cooler. That 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 is not what I said. But no, but it's that's an interesting what I, conclusion. Uh, that is what I decided is happening here right now. We are now connecting different solar systems in a common urge to unite against the oppressor. It's pretty much proletariat of all galaxies unite. Which I would really look forward to seeing. I gotta admit that. Yeah, I decided that is definitely what's happening here because I don't see what else could be the case. I mean, it's either freeing a foreign planet, which might be what they're actually doing right now. If that's what's happening, I'm calling the episode White Saviorism again. <laughs> um, fair. I said I would prefer an autonomous liberation but that is not what i'm expecting from this show right now to be honest um but yeah i do expect that some planets will be freed from the goa'uld whether from their own action or due to our heroes we will see i have my theories and i think afterwards there will be connection and maybe tentative agreements for diplomacy and perhaps trade, who knows? Something like that. Um, a way of carefully forming bonds of trusts between different planets. Maybe I'm just describing a storyline I would like. But yeah, that is my best guess. So I would like to add a little section to our podcast because I think because I thought the episodes are going to be a bit shorter, being based on shorter episodes in the show. Shit, how long did we talk? Uh, for now, it's been two hours and 40 minutes. Um. <laughs> that is, to be fair, 20 minutes shorter than our last meeting, but we're not finished yet. <laughs> yes. Anyway, I think tropes are a really fascinating means to 
introduce characters in a very quick way to make story points obvious very quickly and to advance a story without putting too much time into it. That said, there are some problematics when using tropes as well. And so we can discuss the different tropes in this show. Uh, I would like to list them in the end so we can talk about the positive ones, the negative ones, and the ones that are just plain funny. Or neutral. <laughs> or just meh. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. In the beginning of the episode, I talked about Kowalski's death being multiple tropes at once. At first, there's one with a really, really great name. It's the sudden sequel death syndrome. Oh, I think I know what that means. Is that when it's unintended that there will be a continuation of... I know, that one's good though too. After surviving the original movie and seemingly being set up as a major character in the series plot... The character dies, surprisingly, right at the start. So it's more of a Game of Thrones kind of thing where you're just making clear that no character is not in danger of dying? It's not a threat to the other characters, but it's a way of the show to make clear while we should not expect many major characters to die, this is a way of the show to show us there is a chance that even the bigger characters yeah, maybe pointing to George R. R. Martin was more of a hyperbole on my part, fair. But I yeah, I see the mechanisms here. And I would argue that is not a problematic trope. And have to immediately correct myself, because I do think you can deploy this problematically if you tend to kill off certain groups more than others. But, but this is not what's happening here, so we're good. Exactly. And instilling fear in the audience is another factor that is happening with this story arc because Kowalski is also a, and that's the second trope, sacrificial lion. I would have just called that a hero arc, I guess, but it's not exactly the same thing, is it? It is not. This has a very specific effect. You have a strong character, in this case a soldier we know to be a fighter, who is killed by an enemy to show us that the enemy is a relevant threat towards the protagonists. Ah, yes, I see. Yeah, I think that is that is a good trope that is useful for narrative deployment. Um, I personally would argue it would have been more interesting to give Kowalski the spy arc. To me, that would have also been more intimidating. Because, but maybe that's just because of the kind of enemy I consider to be more spooky and the slow but imminent invasion without even noticing because your friends could be your enemies. I find that way more creepy than he's strong, which is not exactly what this does. But uh, yeah, as you can see, I'm a big fan of Kowalski villain arc. I didn't get that. <laughs> It's in character. It's completely fine. It's nothing I have against the series. I just really like good guys gone bad. Yeah, but I mean, this is explicitly according to his wish. He stated that he did not want to live as the enemy and they respected that. 
uh, I think that's a good thing. Like I said, it's entirely in character. It fits the story. Um, you could have, of course, written it differently with only later on being noticeable that he's possessed and all that. But that is a personal preference. That is not a critic of the show in general. That is just how I like my villains. Talking about Kowalski's wish, that is the next trope dying as yourself and i think this one is very self-explanatory it is very self-explanatory and i would argue it is manifested here quite perfectly we like we said earlier the acting is real good we empathize with kowalski intensely um it is very much in character yeah i think that was that was used very well the last two tropes regarding kowalski's death are presented at the same time. There would be the portal cut, which I always love to see. You you mean the guillotine thing? That's yeah. a trope? Oh, yeah. Oh, a I love portal that. of some sort closing and cutting through whatever is in the portal. It's, it's a thing, and I love it every time. Yeah, fellas, this points to my lack of pop cultural knowledge. I really like that. I think this is the first time I've seen it. You are so cute sometimes. Uh, and it's combined with the gory discretion shot so the aftermath of kowalski getting the top of his head sliced off is blurred and out of focus and we don't even see it while it's happening it's just one turn of his head so we see there's a red mass thing on his head and it's very very short and blurred so that the more squeamish of you is won't be disgusted by that yeah, Punk had to pause for me to see it because I was like, what happened? Why is there a glibber worm in the on the ground? We talked about O'Neill calling Kowalski by his first name throughout this whole episode. And this trope is called first name basis or you called me X. It must be serious. Oh, I love that. Especially because I tend to change names for people when i start serious conversations with them usually when i'm angry i use people's full name which is so annoying and kind of a different trope but yeah the deployment of nicknames or last names or first names in different contexts i think that is a very human normal thing to do and i like using that to show more clearly the relationship to characters have Oh yeah, and we talked before about how the usage of the first name does make him a more relatable character and uh, gives the audience a closer attachment to the character. This trope does not only include the closeness to the character, but also the switch to this first name basis, including an inevitably bad ending. First name basis, it must be serious. Yeah, I see that. I mean, it's pretty much how I use people's full name, right? (laughs) 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 Only they don't die, usually. One trope that is really just more of a joke used in different pop cultural media is the if you die, I call your stuff trope. In this case, O'Neill calling... Um, dips on Kowalski's stereo. I call your stuff. I love it. Yeah, that was hilarious to me. I really, I mean, I like that trope. 
that was just funny. I just I think it fits O'Neill's character very well. Just, and and doesn't deliver it perfectly. Yes. The build up of there's something I have to ask you. It isn't easy for me. Fucking perfect. Yeah, I was totally expecting something very different from that. And it was nice to see the mood lightened a little in this very rough scene. Fellas, I'm a tired individual. I'm almost done. <laughs> it's not your fault. I talked for two hours. <laughs> the most self-explanatory tropes here are both regarding General Hammond. Lovely. I know at least one of them is bad. A father to his men. Meaning he protects his soldiers fiercely? Obviously. He is the infallible wall protecting his subordinates from all harm and bad. Yeah, and I mean, we already pointed out in this episode why I think this is problematic. We are not given any reason to question authority for real. Maybe you would argue Colonel Kennedy gives us an opportunity for that, but I do not think that it reflects on the continuous struggle that is authority with malintent or bad decision-making, simply. Bringing us to the second one. Screw the rules. I have connections. Ah, uh, yeah. We totally did not talk about this in this episode, right? This is about Hammond calling the president to shit <laughs> on Kennedy. on the phone. I love that scene. Um, it's like we cut to Kennedy and O'Neill standing around the desk and Hammond sitting in his chair just really smugly talking on the phone with his bestie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is hilarious. That's true. Um... I'm not sure I think it does much else for the narrative. I think we're again not confronted with the trouble of rigid hierarchical structures. And I believe that is a problematic display of how military works. Because in real life, it's not like every cool dude can just hit up the president and be like... Yeah, I have a fucktard here. Can you solve my problem? Thank you. The antagonist to Hammond in this scenario is uh, Kennedy, obviously. And the role he's playing here is called the obstructive bureaucrat. Yeah, I can totally see that. Sums it up pretty cleanly. Yes, it does. And I think here again, mm, just a personal preference, I like antagonists with a little more grip i like being able to understand them and i think this antagonist is not written too well in that we are immediately highly encouraged to dislike him i personally prefer more nuanced characters but given that i mean he's not going to be that important later on right so maybe that makes sense and it would just be a waste of screen time And it would just be a waste of screen time. Not scream time. <laughs> Although scream I did. <laughs> Carter tells Daniel that the fact that the symbiote possessing Kowalski was able to remember the command passwords means that there's hope for Sharae and Skara, as it indicates that something of the host survives. That is called the hope spot. Yeah. And I would argue in this particular 
particular scenario, I actually like that trope. The trope is great. The only bit that struck me as worthy of mentioning is that it is the female character that gets the trope of hope spot. I see that, and I perhaps would agree with you. But you see, here, this is not a nonsensical, taken from hot air assumption that hope makes sense. She actually has a good point as to why hope is a sensible emotion to feel here. And I personally would argue that in this case, that is actually the positive scenario of her seeing something with her skill of scientific analysis, deducing something from Kowalski's case to the cases of Skara and Share that Jackson cannot see because Jackson is fucking obsessed in his love plot. So you might argue that is actually turning around the dynamic of rationality and emotionality here, albeit in a very subversive way through the arc of hope. I like that. I must say, I think I think that might not have been quite on purpose, but plays out nicely. Leaving the last character trope for Tiog, and it's one I am not going to tell you about, apparently. Hiya, Editing Punk here. For some reason at this point, the audio of our recording cuts off. It's not the length. We have recorded longer episodes. I have no idea what we did wrong, but we did fuck up. My bad. You didn't miss much. It's only the last two or three minutes that are gone, I think. I hope. So now you will have to deal with me instead. I think I'll put this in chapters again. Chapter one, the last trope. The one I just wanted to talk about. It's Tialk not letting the Gua'uld go to the gate. And while its words don't match one to one, it is very close. It's the classic, you shall not pass. Gots to love it. I mentioned a couple of non-character tropes after this one, but I guess we can just skip those. Chapter 2. Nothing but static. Somewhere during this podcast, we mess around and we talk about a podcast I really like listening to. Since recording this one, they have given us an amazing shout-out, which I am so grateful for. The shout-out happens in Nothing But Static episode 254, where the hosts Dan and Chris discuss some recent TV news before reviewing Paper Girls, Sandman and Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal. Other than that, they also host Rewind Reviews, where they talk about movies they watched in their teens and see if they still hold up. Yes, you are right, they were an inspiration for the creation of this podcast. Also, they have a lovely Steven Universe podcast called Steven University and one about Avatar The Last Airbender called Analyzing Avatar, in which they soon are going to start covering The Legend of Korra. I recommend every one of these and will link all of them in the description as per usual. Chapter 3, our Patreon. We are so lucky to not only have people listening to us, that is, you. Hi there. Thanks for being here but also the incredible people supporting us on Patreon. Another shout-out at this point to Nina, Cecilia and Madete, who have supported us since before the first episode. I want to keep all the main content free, but I also want to show my gratitude to the patrons and give them something in return, so I started uploading little snippets of our scripts, if we have any, uh, right after recording, so before I even start editing those. 
And with the editing of this episode, I started saving some outtakes that I will upload to the Patreon as well. So if you want to hear more of the a bit more rambly, uncut stuff from the episodes, head over to patreon.com slash punkfishproductions. There you can support us with as little as one euro per month. That's less than 25 cents per episode. If you want to support us in a non-monetary way, which absolutely fair, you can head over to YouTube and leave a comment on our video there or write our podcast on Spotify, Google, iTunes or any other platform. If you want to talk to us, you can find a contact form on our website or our email addresses at the link to our Discord in the description of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening and have a fantastic rest of the day. See you next week. Bye, strangers. <laughs> Please don't keep that in. <laughs> um, wow, there should be so many outtakes for this one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, God. The entire internet is going to see what a dick I am. I uh, know, only the patrons. Yeah, okay, fair. Just, just don't pay money for this, guys. That, that, that one I'm going to keep in. <laughs> <laughs> Which one exactly? Oh no, the whole internet is going to see what a dick I am. No, only the Patreons. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good advertisement. <laughs> Especially if I'm already being a douchebag the entire rest of the episode. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Marketing. I mean, inclusion through exclusion, right? Everyone needs a proper villain. I am here for this. This is my <laughs> villain arc. <laughs>